Raikkonen took the racing line, but Vettel was like coming onto the racing line from the right, Raikkonen from the left, and uh, they basically tangled wheels is the best way to describe it, and ended up in the gravel. That's not the best way to describe it. That's not the best way. Having watched it a few times, Kimmy just drove into the side of Vettel. (laughs) I was waiting for someone to give that view of things. You're listening to the Cut to the Race podcast. It's lights out, and away we go. Welcome to the Cut to the Race podcast. Today we are going to be reviewing the Austrian Grand Prix where Max Verstappen took yet another win. His fifth of the season, his third in a row. And we're going to go through all of the exciting events that happened there. We're going to discuss the uh, current situation at Mercedes. What's going on with Bottas? What's going on with Hamilton? He's just renewed his contract. There's a lot going on there. And towards the end of the show, we're going to be interviewing Ian Davies, the Extreme E Veloce team manager. He's going to talk to us all about Extreme E and their season so far. On the panel with me today, I have Matt, you're back, and a big congratulations on your engagement. Thank you all. Uh, Don't get me wrong, it's really fun to be engaged, but this is where I wanted to be. This is more important. I missed (laughs) y'all. Good stuff. Um, We have Cal. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I am good, thank you. I am uh, slightly tender after the uh, celebrations of the England game last night, but we're not here to talk about football. Um, and we have Dan, the Bottas fan. How are you? I'm okay. Mixed emotions after that. Uh, we'll get we'll get to why, but yeah, I'm okay. Awesome. So, um, Dan, by the way, really enjoying your news podcast that we're having uh, during the week. For the listeners that maybe haven't heard it, what, what's what's the purpose of your show? Well, we record at some point in the week, depending on when there's the most news. We'll cover all the news from the last week that we don't cover on this show. We all might look at the last race. We'll preview the next race. Got the odd guest coming on. So, yes, yeah, we're listening to Wicked. So if you haven't heard that, make sure you check it out. It comes out midweek. Um so hit that subscribe button, hit that five star, hit that like, press share, do all of those things that you need to do. Let's talk about the Austrian Grand Prix then. Um, qualifying, let's start there. Dan, do you want to give us a rundown of, of, of the qualifying order and any spice that happened in qualifying? Well, there was no massive surprise at the bottom of the field. That was pretty standard. Mazepin was last, Schumacher, Williams... Matt, you're pulling a strange face. No surprise at the bottom of the field with George Russell getting into Q3. Fire this man. Let's get get into that. He's never at the bottom of the field. He's got into Q2 every race this season. Um, Looking up the field, George Russell did get into Q3. He qualified ninth, so he beat Lance Stroll in Q3 as well on the mediums, which was pretty impressive. Uh, Bottas had a slightly disappointing qualifying. He qualified fifth, just behind Hamilton, who was fourth. Perez was third. Lando Norris took the first front row of his career and McLaren's first front row since 2012. That was quite a qualifying by the Brit. And Verstappen popped it on pole. Of course he did. Yeah, I mean, I was I was watching qualifying with Cal. I thought Lando was going to get pole. He was so close. And actually, when you watch back the comparison between Lando and Verstappen, it's quite interesting, isn't it, Cal? Well, yeah, and I, I must admit, my bottom was like a rabbit's nose during that lap. It was absolutely horrible. 
to watch for me as a Verstappen fan. I thought, he's in Austria, he's dominated last week, and now he's going to get pit by a McLaren. And, yeah, it, it, it wasn't fun watching for me, but I'm happy for Lando, 100% happy for Lando. Lando was actually fastest all the way round, and he just lost it in the last corner. Literally one correction uh, cost him that pole. We, we, do, we have been talking a lot about Daniel Ricciardo's pace. He, he qualified, was it, was it P13, Dan? It was P13, yeah. Disappointing again. It's the second week in a row that he's qualified there. He just can't find the Saturday pace. It's McLaren. Um, and of course, we know that Pierre Gasly, any, any guesses where he may have just qualified? Sixth again. That was hard. <laughs> Cal struggles to count to six, holding his fingers up. So I can't jump right to the number. I'm sitting here going, okay, one, two, three. And by that time, Ollie's just looking disappointed at me. Like, I know the American doesn't know his numbers. I'm not even going to look at that. Uh, and the Ferraris didn't have a great qualifying. Uh, 11th and 12th, uh, science just out qualifying Charles Leclerc. But yes, we did start the day with Max Verstappen uh, on the front row next to Lando Norris. Um, it's quite an exciting start. What, what do we think about the start to the race? Cal? Uh, the, the start of the race was actually, to be honest, watching it pretty uneventful, uh, the first lap was, wasn't it? Um, I'm trying to think of any incidents that happened and I can't really. Ocon got head. hit and retired. Yeah, he, he was just a, an innocent bystander in that, wasn't he? And But it didn't really affect the outcome of the race. I don't think he really would have been competitive anyway. Um Sorry, Ocon, if that offends you. But, no, Verstappen just sort of drove off into the distance. Lando held back the, the Mercedes cars, and Perez was actually giving giving it as good as he got as well. So, yeah, the start of the race. As you said, Cal, um, the Dutchman roared away. Norris, he tried. He gave it a bit. He gave it a good go. But it was Gasly right on the back of Bottas that was quite exciting. I thought for a moment he was going to get him up that hill. Um, and then all of a sudden, I found this really quite frustrating it just said safety car on the screen we had no idea why it was boom safety car straight away and it took a, probably a lap to find out what happened but it was as you said Ocon stopped to turn three um and they called the safety car out our mate uh, Mylander. I do have an interesting point on that you know we've been talking recently well you guys have been talking recently about the apparent drop-off in Esteban Ocon's performance and his ability to maintain that pretty good start he had to the season. If you go through the components that have been replaced on the cars, there's actually a great little website out there that I will not say out loud that goes through component by component, the numbers of internal combustion engines, transfer cases, and things like that. Esteban Ocon is the only person in the entire field running his initial transfer case, MGUH, and MGUK. And I'm wondering if that is a, a testing thing for the 2022 car for them, and they know that Fernando Alonso needs to be competitive to maintain uh, his spirit within the team because we know how fiery he can be. So I almost wonder if they're kind of sacrificing him a little bit and they may be having additional wear and tear on those components and they may be seeing a reduction in performance because it's been so marked a drop-off for him that looking at the driver's stats for the last couple of races, I can find nothing else to make sense. It literally feels like he is, you know, stuck in the, the Formula 2 car that Fernando Alonso so famously complained about driving a few years back uh, whenever else is in a Formula 1 car. That's the only thing I can see. I thought that was an interesting explanation. It could be complete BS. We will never know. But I, I wonder why they're doing that and if that ties into the horrible results he's been having lately. 
Yeah, it's a fair point. I mean, you know, Alonso's uh, giving him a run for his money, isn't he? Um, uh, I tell you, he didn't have a good start. That was George Russell. So, you know, he had a fantastic qualifying. But by the end of, uh, well, by the time the safety car out was out, it dropped, well, I think it was four places. He was down in P12. That wasn't good, was it, Cal? No, it wasn't. Um, yeah, I actually said to you before the race, obviously we watched the race together, I said that I think George Russell will actually make up a couple of places start um, because Sonoda was in front of him. And I think Gasly as well. And Sonoda's not exactly known for his um, race starts, is he? he? He usually drops a couple of places. Manners? So. Manners? Manners? Yeah, I suppose you, you know, <laughs> a few of those words could float about around his head, couldn't they? Yeah. Um, no, I, I expected George to actually improve on his position at the start. But to be fair to George, we'll get to it later, but he did come back quite strongly. Um, one notable start for me was actually Daniel Ricciardo. Um I think he picked up two places on the first lap, correct me if I'm wrong, but he had a very, very strong start. And it, it again goes back to that. The drivers that have gone into the new teams, qualifying pace is not there, but the race pace is. And um, Ricardo had a very, very strong start to the race. I agree with that most of the way. Uh, I do feel that, you know, we've been talking about these second driver integrations for a while. That's going to be a continuous theme throughout this rest of the season. You know, we've, all been operating under the assumption that the Red Bull car is notoriously hard to drive, which I still feel it is. I mean, look at the slew of bodies it has left behind it in the last couple of years. Sergio Perez, you know, while still not operating at a level that I think Helmut Marco and Christian Horner would be happy with, is closing that gap. And I wonder if you know, we needed to look into this, actually, what the time splits are. Instead of the qualifying order, how many seconds off that number one driver, quote-unquote, the new drivers are, you know, with the exception of Sebastian Vettel, almost all of them are sitting around three to five tenths back every time. It just, I feel like it becomes more glaringly obvious with the, how close the Mercedes and the Red Bull cars are that when we see Checo Perez sitting, you know, third and fourth, we're like, Hey, he's doing great, which he is, but it's because there's only four cars in that echelon, if you will. If we go down the grid a little bit to, you know, the Alpha Tauris, to the Ferraris, to the McLarens of Danny Rick as well, they're so close that I'm kind of starting to wonder if they're all within that same window of acceptability behind that number one driver. It's just the whole field is so damn tight that the smallest error, the smallest lack of faith in that car becomes exceedingly obvious. You know, we're talking about Landon Norris had that one oversteer correction that cost him pole. That car is that good. But he's operating at a higher level and proficiency than Daniel Ricciardo. So that mistake becomes more glaring the further you go down. That's just, there's a hmm. bunch of weird things at this point in the season that I'm kind of picking up on and that are what keep me awake at night. Well, that and, you know, what I'm going to hmm. drink tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, I was quite happy that the safety car came out because, again, it resets the race. Um, so when the safety car came in, it's, this is lap four, um, you had Perez in third at the time. And he was on the attack. He's like, there should not be a McLaren in front of me here. I'm in the Red Bull. And this is what turned the race into just a whole race of penalties. And it's been a big discussion point. So, Cal, do you want to explain what happened uh, as, as they were, what was it, turn four? Yeah, so Lando was leading Perez into turn four. Um, Perez tried to go around the outside, and obviously turn four for the listeners, if they can't quite picture it in their heads, it's the second straight leading down 
to the fourth corner, obviously, and it's a downhill right-hander. Quite a sweeping corner. It's quite hard to actually control the car around at the best of times. So Lando's taking the racing line. Perez has gone for an outside swoop, which for that corner, you need to be going a lot quicker than the car in front to actually make the pass. Um, he didn't have the speed. Lando took the racing line and Perez was sort of forced into the gravel. Lando ended up with a five-second time penalty. Now, for me, that was wrong. It's racing. It's early on in the race as well. Perez should have backed out for me. As a Red Bull fan, Perez should have backed out. And I think it, maybe a few laps later, Perez would have taken him. He needed just to be a little bit more patient there and take him in a, an easier corner to get past Lando because Lando had shown a lot of pace. You're trying to take on one of the faster drivers on the grid that weekend around the outside of a difficult corner. Um, yeah, I don't agree with I don't agree with the five second penalty either. It's essentially what you're saying is if you're behind and you just fancy lunging it, you're never going to lose out there because your opponent's either going to get going to get a penalty or you're going to be in the lead because they're forced to give it up. Whereas that's just not right. I think obviously there's two sides to this. So this is this this is the same corner where Hamilton took out Albon, um, and if I remember correctly, he got a penalty for that. Um, but th th this is gravel. There's no runoff area. If you put one tire in that, you're going to lose places. And um, you know, if you look at the onboard from Perez, there's nowhere he could go. He was committed. He was pushed out. There's no doubts about that. However, he was off the racing line. Lander was on the racing line. Um, and it cost Perez how many places in the end? Eight places. So he, he came back on in 10th. And I reckon the FIA, you know, the race directors were just going... Oh God! Well, he he had no option, and they just didn't think it through because this was then the story of the race. Do, would you agree with that, Dan? Yeah, I really like the fact that gravel's there. To be honest, because it means you can't just run really wide and then carry on with the races you would have done. Which so I'm glad there was gravel there. It was harsh on Perez. You know, he had one wheel on it, and then he was back most because of the gravel. But I prefer seeing that because it encourages better wheel-to-wheel -wheel racing while being fair than it does if there's a runoff where you just happily go, okay, yeah, you take the place, I'll wait for the next DRS zone. You can't do that, which I really like. Yeah, which is what happens in turn one. Everyone just goes off and it's almost like, oh, you're going that way, I'm going this way. And it's almost two racing lines for turn one at the start. Um, Matt, what do you think on this one? I think it also is what we all... It's one of the reasons we all kind of disparage Paul Ricard. I think we should randomly hide barriers around that track so you don't have you know, any angle in any direction you can run off as far as you can see with inside the fences and still come out okay. The big takeaway from me for this, I was very happy to see Lando fighting. You know, last week he had, he was forced by team orders to let by, I think it was Lewis, you know, telling him that our fight's not with him. And I'd be very curious to know if that was Lando Norris, like, give me a chance, let me show you what I can do in this car, or if it was the engineers looking at it and saying, we have the pace, we can take this fight. Uh, nobody wants to see a, as you, as you were, sir, come through overtake. You know, if Chekla had pulled that off, it would have been incredible. He would have had to earn it. And I do still maintain that I feel Lando left in my car's width if you slow it down frame by frame. At the speed they're going, you know, that's a very precise driving. So if he leaves a car width, Sergio has to put it a car's width next to him. So if he goes that extra, that extra couple of inches, that's how you pay the price of the gravel. So I'm, I feel it was unjust. I feel it take took away from the battle that we would love to see unfold between those two because we saw it today as well, as we'll talk about later. Lando Norris is a brilliant defender. 
and a counterattacker. That would have been a fun battle to watch, and I hate we didn't get more of that. Yeah, I mean, the tables did turn later on, Count. Yeah, I just want to point out, Ollie, you said that the FIA didn't take time to think about it. Now, it was a few laps after, and then it was a few laps of investigation before Perez actually got rewarded the penalty. So I, I hate to say it, mate, but I think they actually did think about it and still came out with the wrong uh, the wrong um, outcome. Mm. Outcome, yeah, you know. I think even Christian Horner would agree with that, Cal, because if I remember correctly, during the broadcast, they actually went to the pit wall and they were asking, you know, what do you think about that, Christian Horner? He's like, you know, racing is racing. It's going to happen. Uh, We're not going to look at it further. So if the afflicted party is saying, you know, no harm, no foul, that's the life we signed up for, it it, kind of frustrates me. that They continue to look into that when the people who have more at stake than the stewards – are saying it's okay. Granted, they have to maintain standards and you know be aware for safety. But the guy you just put off is saying, "Don't worry about it, mate. That's racing." And then they put that five second penalty on there like that. That still doesn't sit well. I've got to be honest. When Christian Horner said that, I was thinking, "What? This is very unlike Christian Horner." Usually, he's yeah, he did this to me, um, and he didn't. And I'm, I'm I'm thinking it must have been the bloke sitting next to Christian Horner went. No, we can get a position out of this, um, or this can benefit us, or something. But yeah, it's very strange for Chris Orland to go. No, that was racing. You know, what? the guy next to him just throwing elbows at his ribs, like shut up, yeah, shut up. It, I've already complained to the FIA, um, and yeah, it's that set the tone for future penalties, of which there were many. Um, this now meant that Sir Lewis Hamilton had Lando in his sights. This went on for quite a while, didn't it, uh, Dan? He was stuck. He just could not overtake that McLaren. The McLaren had brilliant straight line speed, to be fair to it. But he just, even with DRS, he was hardly close enough at all. And then the corner arrived. So, yeah, that was that was interesting. Because I didn't think Lando would be able to stay ahead for that long. And then he did. And then Lewis said that he was such a great driver over the radio. So game recognises game in that fact. Yeah, and I think it was the dirty air that was the problem for Hamilton. I think Hamilton probably had a little bit more pace than Lando, but being in the dirty air, he was just shredding his own tyres. And it's credit to Bottas here. Bottas was behind Hamilton, and it looked like he actually dropped back away from Hamilton a touch to get some clean air, because he knew no one was going to catch him, and he knew that there was no point in sitting on Hamilton's rear wing. Let Hamilton get through, if he can, which... Ultimately, until I think Lando let him through because the um, until the penalty came out, Lando was giving it everything. And I think he thought, right, now's the time to sort of let Lewis pass, run my own race. Uh, which is unfortunate because I really thought that Lando could have actually showed the Mercedes up today. And if it wasn't for that penalty, which was the wrong penalty, as we've just discovered or discussed, sorry then uh, P2 could have been the result today for Lando. On that note, when uh, when Bottas dropped back a bit, you know, we all kind of thought, oh, he, he can't follow, which obviously wasn't the case. He was on plan A, which was obviously a one-stop strategy. Um, but then Bottas had to actually check with the team that they hadn't changed his strategy without telling him, because they've obviously done that in the past. You know, they kind of did it in France. They're like, all right, push. <laughs> By the way, you're on a one-stop, unlucky. Yeah, he wanted to, you know, double check and make sure. The fact to do that, it's just a bit worrying with the whole Mercedes-Bottas atmosphere, but we'll get on to that. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good point, Dan. It, it, just, it just leads into our next section of this podcast, discussing what's going on there. Um, so it actually took until lap 20 for Hamilton to finally get past. So that is that is a long time to keep uh, a Mercedes of a seven-time world champion behind you in a McLaren. Um, and uh, Norris said his brakes are on fire. What was that about? Because we reviewed every camera angle. How did he even see that at 160 miles an hour? What was going on there, Cal? Well, first of all, I do believe that if he... If it was real, he saw it because, as we know, F1 drivers are superhuman and see everything in slow motion, which is why they're so fast. Um, yeah, I think it might have been a little bit of gamesmanship from Lando there, to be honest. I wouldn't be surprised if the Mercedes pit wall were listening and thought, oh, God, is the car on fire? And just made them scramble a little bit. It might have been a little bit of gamesmanship. As you say, we didn't see it on camera, so we can never know. I almost wonder if it was a very, very minuscule lockup with the smallest puff of smoke. Because if you get those perfectly perpendicular shots to an F1 car when it's slowing down, you know, they're thousands of degrees and glowing red hot almost every time they have a hard apply. So I think there could have been like a flash where he saw the rotor and it was orange and it was a puff of smoke. And he's like, cool, I can exploit this. Because they are thinking that far ahead. Uh, Some of these drivers are. I wonder if it was just a misinterpretation, but I I think he saw in some way or form what he says he saw in that moment and then tried to turn it to his own advantage. Absolutely. Uh, what was it Hamilton said when he passed? Um, oh, I've, I can't remember the quote He's, now. I think he said, Lando is a great driver or something along those lines. He said, great driver. And he said, Lando at some point in his sentence. And I turned to you, Ollie, at the time and I said, can't believe he's saying this but fair play to him for saying it because he was really struggling to get past him and and Lewis recognized that and Lewis I've noticed this season is actually trying to g up a lot of the younger drivers I think he's really sort of looking out for them and trying to give them he knows he's in a position where they respect him they worship the ground he walks on and he's giving a little bit back with a little bit of sportsmanship just a little oh he's great you know that that spurs Lando on so much and gives him so much confidence. I think that pattern you're talking about there, Cal, is very, very important for the interpretation of that because he is almost an advocate for the next generation of stars. He's always hyping them up and, you know, he, in his interviews after the race, will always talk about who pushed him to the limit that day. If you flip the script, imagine if Fernando Alonso had said the same thing. We'd all think he was taking the piss. Like, there's no way he would actually be genuine in that. It would just be complete sarcasm. So uh, it was kind of cool to hear that. And also, once again, that superhuman ability of who thinks to say that at 180 miles an hour, he's not frustrated, he is completely cool and calm. He's like, you know what, that was a cool little race. Thanks, Lando, as he passes him. That's just a sign of a man operating on another plane that we cannot hope to achieve. I actually, I'm a, I'm a Lewis fan, right? But when he did it, I almost thought it sounded a bit condescending. And he didn't mean it in that way, but it's like, great driver, Lando. I've just passed you, haven't I? Uh, there's two ways, two ways you can look at it. But actually, Lando, cracking drive. Lewis had to really struggle to get past him. We had Sonoda. He got a penalty. So we, this is the second penalty of the race. Or is it the third? Because there was another one for overtaking behind the safety car. But Sonoda crossed the pit entry line got five-second penalty. Later in the race, what did he do? Did the same thing all over again. 
there's an there's an angry helmet Marco waiting to speak to him on the telephone. I'm sure of that. It's pretty simple. If from F3, F4, Formula Renault, whatever you're racing in, you follow the pit line round into the pit lane. Tsunoda just goes, no, I'm going to follow the racing line, and then at the last minute, I'm going to go into the pit lane. Like, wh- why? Then you made it once. Fair enough. You made a mistake. Then he did it again. Just silly by Sonoda. Silly mistakes that he needs to cut out if he wants to get anywhere in the sport. Yeah, the, the only defence I have for him, which is not really a very strong defence because no, no one else did it, but the racing line cuts through the, the pit lane. So maybe he thought, oh, I can do this. Maybe he thought it was allowed. Um, but having done it once and then had his hand slapped and then doing it again, it's as if he's being told at the very last second when he's round the corner and he's already cut the line, like, you know, go in the pits. That is the only excuse I have for him. I doubt that even happened. Um, yeah, it's just silly, isn't he? To be honest. I mean, if if the racing line does go into the into the pit entry, then actually you would be in it, right? So yeah, it, it was it was just a bit amateur error, and the fact that he did it twice, you know, um, you can make a mistake once, but if you get a penalty, you're not going to do it again. You'd think about it next time. Clearly, he didn't. Um, we had rounds of pit stops. Is there anything we want to comment on, on the on the pit stops? Anything that we need to call out, guys? I think there was a lot of number crunching going on. We had that five-second penalty we were talking about assessed to Lando. They wasted no time and tried to basically turn a five-second penalty into a prolonged undercut. I feel they timed that perfectly and beautifully to allow them to go to the end on those tires. Uh yeah, once again, it was another day of pretty consistent stops throughout the field. But by going that much earlier, by already having that penalty assessed, granted, there will be a tire drop off at the end. But as long as, you know, they were monitoring Lando throughout that, having him wash the tires and keep from destroying them. So they judged that beautifully on the pace he needed to run on his outlap and the rest of the race to get them where they did. I mean, today was a sneaky master class from McLaren in the face of adversity. That was a pretty cool thing for me to see. Yeah, exactly. So sometimes pit stops look simple, but they're actually key deciders for a race. Uh, Dan, what do you think? Uh, yeah, Lando had to serve his five-second penalty in his first pit stop. That He shouldn't have been given the penalty in the first place. But anyway, he had to serve that penalty. And then Mercedes actually made a good strategy call for the first time in about three races. And uh, Bottas followed him straight into the pits. And then obviously with the five-second penalty... Bottas is able to get ahead of him in the pits. So pitting on the same lap as Lando was the right decision, which I was pleasantly surprised about. Because Bottas and pit stops haven't gone great together this season. No, it, it was nice to see Mercedes actually think about Bottas for once in the race and actually make the right call. Because I was thinking Lando's going to pit. He's going to get the five-second margin he needs. Because he already had, what, two and a half seconds? Um, because I think he only came out after the five seconds, like two seconds behind or something like that. So, you know, it's good to see Mercedes saw that and actually read that situation on Bottas's front because usually they're all tunnel vision on Lewis, aren't they? And uh, yeah, it was, good, it was good to see. I haven't done this in a while on the podcast, so I have to return to form. I think that what that really shows us is Lando Norris and the McLaren is as fast as Valtteri Bottas and Mercedes, so they just need to watch what they do with him because he's as fast as a slower car. <laughs> Dan did not enjoy that. <laughs> we um we had a good battle start to develop, which was Gasly, Ricardo, uh, Perez, and Leclerc. Now 
just as that was shaping up, we had the second uh, pushing off incident. So this time, it was Leclerc having a go on Perez, and the man who's just been pushed off decided to push the other man off. Or did he? Uh, Cal, what did you make of this one? Uh, again, I don't, I don't think it was a fair penalty, to be honest. Um, the way I saw it, and correct me if I'm wrong, Perez, again, is on the racing line, like Lando was, but Leclerc came steaming in and turned in very early and obviously caused contact, which eventually led to, you know, Leclerc going in the gravel. Um, wrongly gave a penalty. If anything, I feel there should have been a penalty going the other way there. Yeah, Leclerc seemed quite reckless all, all race. Uh, Matt, what did you make of that? I was, that's exactly what I was about to say. You know, Charles Leclerc, I refer to quite frequently on this podcast as Mr. Consistency. I feel like today he may have felt that he was lagging behind Carlos throughout the weekend and had something to prove. He had a chip on his shoulder because he was driving like a pissed off teenager out there in some sections of the track. It wasn't the same fluidity and surgical precision that he normally has. And so that's part of it. Uh, I also have a request for anybody listening to this podcast. The first person to send me a video of Sergio Perez's two incidences with the Who song, We Won't Get Fooled Again, playing for this turn incident would, would be my favorite person. I think it was a little bit of aggro defense in that scenario from Perez. I would not call it a uh, punitive incident where there should have been a penalty assessed. Charles Leclerc opened that door, handed Checo the keys and said, please boot me in the ass. Is how that went down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, but it is, it was kind of serendipitous to see Checo then be the one to put him off. Yeah. Uh, Dan, what did you make of it? Yeah, I don't think I don't think it was a penalty, but the FIA left themselves no choice really. You know, they they have to keep it consistent. So one thing to say about the FIA, you know, they made terrible decisions with the penalties, but at least they were consistently terrible, and they weren't doing one thing for one driver and one thing for another. But it's just annoying. We just want to see wheel to wheel racing, and they're kind of stopping that. So yes, he then got himself a five second penalty, and. Um, it did seem like Perez was a little bit fighting the car and, you know, they, they, there was a small touch there. Um, then we saw uh, Hamilton start to struggle a little bit. Um, there's this talk that we now know of a mysterious uh, damage that Hamilton didn't know when he got it or where he got it. Toto Wolff knew exactly where it came from. And then this became a little bit of a um, political nightmare. For Mercedes, I'd say. Cal, uh, what have you got to say on it? I think um, a lot of people were hitting the curves today, and I think Hamilton was just unfortunate to get the damage he did. I do believe it came from turn 10. Um, I think Toto was right on that front. Yeah, he, he just lost all pace, didn't he? But I think a lot of that came from the fact that before the first pits, he was following... Lando, like a madman, trying to get past him for a good 20 laps. And I think the car was running hot. It was obviously, when it's running hot, it's going to slow down. And then he had damage. So he was just a sitting duck at that point. He may as well have retired the car. Um, it was just a boring race for him overall, wasn't it, to be honest? Well, on, on, that, on that damage that Hamilton had, Hamilton obviously had that damage, which is fine. He slowed down and he lost the race pace that he had before he had that damage, is fair enough. Bottas was behind Hamilton, and Norris was going very nicely behind Bottas. So Bottas is catching up to Hamilton at a rate of knots at this point, and you know AWS predicted a two striking, two 
two laps striking distance. And what did, you, know sorry, that? what did you know? How did you know that? How did you know that? Uh, it's powered by AWS. <laughs> that, that's how I knew that. For the listeners that don't get that, yeah, where have you been? Uh, <laughs> but actually, AWS said, yes, Bottas will be in striking distance in two laps. Um, Dan, be honest. What did you say when you saw that graphic? Well, I don't trust the AWS graphics, so I said, yeah, likely story, not actually realising how close Bottas was. And then Bottas charged Hamilton down, and then he was right behind him, and Norris was right behind Bottas. So naturally, everyone kind of goes, right, Hamilton's got a really slow car, Bottas is going pretty nicely on these new tyres, let Bottas pass, Hamilton can block Norris for a bit. Makes perfect sense. You hear the uh, Bottas team radio tingle on, and everyone thinks, right, that's going to be Lewis will let you pass. No, no, it's no one thought that. <laughs> Let's be honest. Well, okay, yeah, no one thought. That's what I hoped. You hoped that, exactly. That would have made sense, but no. The radio goes, "Yeah, Valtteri, uh, Lewis is ahead of you. He has damage, but you're not racing him." What? That makes literally no sense. None at all. Why would you not let the fast car go ahead of the slow car? Uh, the, uh, uh. And they didn't actually need to even organise a switcheroo. He could have just overtaken him, He would have right? just overtaken him with <laughs> yeah. DRS on if, the straight. The team could have kept their mouth shut and just let nature take its course. There was no uh, sense behind that radio message. None. At all. I will say one thing on this. Sorry to jump on you there, Cal. Uh, first off, I noticed that it was Botas catching Hamilton. It wasn't Lando Norris catching Botas. He was going along nicely. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, they were both catching Hamilton. They, they were both catching so Hamilton. I I think what their their uh, reasoning behind that was, if they allowed Botas to chase down Hamilton, he could have given basically given Lando the toe around him. So by severing when they did, then that toe is attached to Hamilton, who isn't the slower car, and that gives Botas a little bit of a chance to widen that gap and see if he can push it to the end. There is more behind that, but it was really fun to listen to Dan's reaction when that radio broadcast came over. But even if I wasn't a Bottas fan, I feel like that was a pretty standard reaction at that point. It was just so senseless as to what on earth they were saying. Kel is desperate to get a word in here. Go on. <laughs> Tell us what you think, mate. <laughs> what I want to say is, first of all, Bottas got gifted the place in front of Lando due to the wrongly given time penalty to Lando. But having said that, Lewis sustained damage through his own fault. Bottas caught him up through, you know, fair and square pace. The radio message, to me, it was just wrong. Say it, like, say it, In every say single it. way. I actually turned to Ollie d- during the race and said, you must be cringing right now as a Mercedes fan hearing that because it was just so wrong. If I heard Christian Horner come over the radio and say to Sergio Perez, no, don't overtake Verstappen, but Verstappen was going two or three seconds a lap slower, I'd be saying, what the hell are you doing? Think about the team. Don't think about your best driver. Think about the team. And, um, yeah, I just think they're shafting themselves because Bottas is now, that initial message is what will stick with him, not the second message, the initial message. And now he's never going to want to help Lewis on track. He's not going to want to be that defender, that wingman. He's just going to want to run his own race and do his own thing. And Mercedes have shafted themselves by doing that. Mercedes, they publicly humiliated Bottas, is what I would say. And they... They 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 lacked emotion when they said that. And it this is what sort of is going to bring us on to our second segment today, talking about what's going on at Mercedes, because that shows something ain't right there. 
Hamilton had just radioed in and said, I can't let this tire, I can't make this tire last. And then they instantly say, don't race Hamilton as their first thing that comes to their head. Um, it, it was not, it was not professional. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a Hamilton fan. I, I don't think Bottas is the greatest driver on earth, but you can't say that in those circumstances. It was highly unprofessional. It's not even like, you know, it's one lap from the end, Lewis needs his championship points, Bottas do everything you can here. This was like 30 laps, I don't even know. But it was miles away from the end. You know, That's it wasn't 50. even close. Okay, so 20, 21 laps from the end. Even with the benefit of hindsight from the race, that still angers me and is just senseless as to why they would, why they'd say that. And as you said, Ollie, the lack of emotion. It wasn't even like, okay, just hang on a sec, just assessing our chances. Okay, yeah, yeah, you can go through now. It was, no, no, stay there. It was just blunt. I actually had an interesting theory on this uh, because I was scrambling back and forth like a madman during the race all day today. Uh, when that came over, with that lack of emotion, I think there was emotion there. I think it was almost a, a not a resignation but like a downtroddenness to that in that do we really think that Mercedes are now looking at we might lose the drivers, we have to do all we can to maintain the Constructors' Championship. So by having Botas go to second after that to get those additional points rather than having Lewis try to stay second, and it could be, it could have ended Verstappen, Lando, then Hamilton if they had done the normal game. And that would have robbed them of a couple of very, very precious points at this point in the season. Okay. I'm going to give you my theory on, on the, the meaning behind this. And we can discuss what we think is going on at Mercedes um, in a little bit. Um, it was two laps later. Actually, it was a lap and a half later they said, um, you can now race your teammate. That shows me they didn't have a plan at that point, right? That was crap. We've just got to do this. Um, so then Bottas took him. But he didn't take him easy. Like they said over the radio, the turn that they said that they were going to invert the cars wasn't the turn that Bottas got ahead of Hamilton. You know, everyone made a massive deal on Bottas in Spain. They're like, oh, we made, he made Hamilton overtaking him really difficult. But Hamilton didn't exactly make this easy for Bottas and it allowed Lando to close up even further. And Lando got past Hamilton easier than Hamilton let, in inverted commas, Bottas passed, so it's it's just not something is wrong at that team with Bottas, and I don't I hate to see it. It, it is, and really, Mercedes should have just kept the mouth shut, and um, it would have just all fallen into place. Just let them race. The same thing would have happened. They wouldn't have made themselves look like idiots. Um, Perez then got a second time penalty, didn't he? What? Why, why did he get another time penalty? Uh, Cal, you you explain. Well. I can't think what the turn number is off the top of my head. Um, basically, it's a left-hander. Leclerc's trying to come around the outside. Perez again takes the racing line. Again, Leclerc is steaming in like a madman. Shouts a load of abuse over the radio and ends up in the gravel. Um, he didn't actually lose that much time either the second time. Um, yeah, again, wrongly, wrongly penalised there. Uh, he's had 10 seconds worth of penalties that could have gone either way there, and Leclerc wasn't punished once. I think Leclerc was the reckless driver today, not Perez, and I think you know the FIA should have listed those both as racing incidents, if anything. 
Yeah, I don't I don't think this one was a penalty either. Not really sure what the FIA had been. If someone said to you, right, here's three incidents, which one got a penalty? I would have said the last one. I think it was the most clear cut of, no, you're not coming through onto the gravel. But none of, the, none of them were penalties, really. The FIA doomed themselves after giving Lando a penalty because they had to be consistently stupid rather than inconsistently stupid. That's exactly it. Once there is no undoing of a penalty. So once you biff the first one, you then have to biff everything close to it. And there's happened to be a lot of those today. If you're going to be wrong, be always wrong in a race, basically. Yeah, man. Biff those penalties. Um, so Bottas got past. Um, like you said, he didn't make it easy. I don't think they should. They should just race. Um, and then Norris got past Hamilton. Brilliant move. Um, I thought it was good fun. Uh, what did you make of it, that, uh, Dan? Um, sorry, just going back a second. I actually think it would have been easier if Mercedes had just let them race because they were fiddling around in the twisty section of the trap trying to get Bottas ahead. They literally may as well have just waited for the run to turn three or the DRS straight which was straight after turn three. I think there's one as well, isn't there? There's three at that track. The Mercedes just made everything awkward for themselves today. It was just, I don't know what they were doing at all. But yeah, Hamilton put up in, from my view, and I think most people's views, less defence against Norris than he did against his own teammate, which was just a bit weird. Yeah, right, exactly. So, I mean, you've got Verstappen in the lead. Uh, we haven't spoken about him because he just led the entire race. Um, you've then got Bottas and Boris, not Boris, you've got Bottas and Norris. Um, you know, pretty equal ties. And Hamilton in fourth. Perez was not going to get Hamilton. What was the point of that? Um, there was never going to be a, a fight there. And I just don't think what else happened now. Is there anything else? We saw George Russell towards the end defend quite well against Fernando Alonso. So then we had a great sort of... Uh, then we had a great battle between two fantastic drivers. Um, Matt. We, as an international F1 community, need to start a petition right now that anytime George Russell is 11th or higher in the race, everybody shuts up about him. Because between the formula nerds and the, the old commentator's curse, he has come so close so many times that he's either destined to better Nico Hulkenberg's horrible record of not getting a podium or a win. He'll never finish in the points because literally we start talking about it amongst the nerds and I just started panicking. Like, you know, everybody shut up. No, nobody say anything. And sure enough, I don't think it's necessarily on Russell. I think that car still lacks a little bit more oomph. Uh, so he can biff it into the points since I just learned what that means thanks to Ollie. But uh, I'm just, it's so disheartening to see him come so tantalizingly close over and over and over again. This is what the fifth time this year that he's been just edged out towards the end of the race. It, it, it's heartbreaking at this point. So we need to all, superstitious or not, we need to do all that we can to uh, keep George Russell in the points for once in our lives. Yeah, uh, George fought off Fernando absolutely brilliantly. I must say, the car is clearly a lesser car than the Alpine. And I've actually got a quote here from Fernando Alonso. And he says, When I saw it was Russell in P10, I hoped it would be anyone but him. Fernando clearly rates George as a very good driver, which rightly so, he is. And Fernando really gave him a good go. And George defended to the hills. And I, I loved watching that. It was fantastic. Even though it was only for one point, they've both fought like it was for a win. 
the last time um, Alonso bigged up uh, Lando Norris, that was in Imola, if I seem to remember. He, he said on that build up to the weekend, he said how uh, Norris was, um, sorry, last time Alonso bigged up Russell was on the Imola weekend, I think, and he said how he's this amazing driver and he can do this and that. And that was the same weekend that he was in the points and then he crashed behind the safety car. Um, am I right? So Alonso clearly likes this guy and he's Alonso is the problem. He didn't crash behind the safety car. He took Bottas out. Oh, I'm thinking of the year before. Yeah. Sorry. Is Fernando Alonso secretly, like, building a black magic shrine somewhere just to keep George Russell down? Because And also... What is going on in this world now? Fernando Alonso is being complimentary to other competitive drivers. <laughs> what is this season? And English ones. Mate, what the hell? Not, not only was he complimentary, there is a picture of them parked up at the end. And as soon as they both got out of the car, they went over, shook hands and had a little cuddle. That is genuine respect between those two drivers. There's no black magic shrine anywhere, mate. They, they, he loves it. There's another he bromance. Wants to, he wants to adopt him. The other bromance on the grid is Vettel and uh, Mick Schumacher, isn't it? They've been looking at each other's seats um, and offering advice. So we've got two bromances going on at the moment. Interesting. Um, on the final lap, Sainz picked off Danny Rick. Oh, I've got to say, Danny Rick did some awesome defending. I actually said to Cal, I said, um, defending is almost... <laughs> quite often more important than attacking in F1. And Danny Rick is uh, a master of both of those things. Danny Rick had a very good race, starting from 13th to finish 7th. So, yeah, you need to give him a bit of credit. You know, he's really struggled with that McLaren. And maybe he's he's found his feet in it. I don't want to say that for definite until we've seen a couple more races. But he's got a fair bit of catching up to do in the constructors, that's for sure. Did we ever find out who the yellow flag at the end of the race was for? Because my broadcast dropped out and I did not get to see it. You didn't see it? I did not Matt, get to see I it. Wanna, I want to tell him. Every, all of you guys, shut up. This is my time. <laughs> this is me. It took so long, though, to see what it was for, yeah. didn't it? My it did take God. a while because we were all fearing. It was like, oh, is that our favourite driver? Because no one knew who it was. And see, there was nothing on the timings. Nothing changed in the, the running order. All we knew so. is that Max Verstappen had finished about a minute before everyone. Yeah, the race, and, the race was over and somebody and still found a way. Something had happened. And... Cal is going to explode if he doesn't get to tell us. I will literally start crying. Let me let me get it out. Matt, it was Sebastian Vettel. No, as soon as you said oh, my yeah. name that way. Oh. Oh yeah, oh, yeah it was. Oh, in Not big, his fault, though. I must big, admit. Big crash as well. It was quite, yeah. quite four, large. Turn four, Raikkonen on the outside, Vettel on the inside. Kimmy did it? Is it Russ? Was it Russell just in front of them? It was yeah. a Williams, anyway. Yeah, it's Russell. And um, basically, Raikkonen took the racing line, but Vettel was like coming onto the racing line from the right, Raikkonen from the left, and uh, they basically tangled wheels is the best way to describe it, and ended up in the gravel. That's not the best way to describe it. That's not the best way. Having watched it a few times, Kimmy just drove into the side of Vettel. <laughs> I was waiting for someone to give that view of things. They, they did merge sick. towards each other, but I think it wasn't, wasn't more Kimmy's Listen, fault. Kimmy was behind, right? He was about half a car length, so there was about... His nose was next to Vettel's body, put it that way, and he just drove into him. 
Oh, and it was Matt's spectacular. Trying, Matt's trying to think of the defense for Seb when he didn't even see the incident here. Well, I'm, not think, quite I'm not even trying to think of a defense. I'm just. It was his flipping birthday weekend, Kimmy. What are you doing? Oh, that. It wasn't Seb's fault. Was not Seb's fault. You won't be buying Seb a birthday drink. And they were going fast. That must have been a good 160, 170 mile an hour crash. But neither of them hit anything, did they? It was just a spectacular scene of gravel and dust. Um, it was quite beautiful, actually. It was. It was lovely well, to watch. Yeah. It was like I think Abu Dhabi will probably add a gravel trap at the end to replace the fireworks. Now after saying that, it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I will say this. So that answers my next question. From where I'm missing information, at the end of the race, uh, because of the, the mysterious yellow that is now my heart leaving my body, they called in the following drivers to the stewards' office for the, not respecting apparently Seb's yellow flag. They called in Gasly, Ricardo, Giovinazzi, Latifi, Mazepin, Charles Leclerc, Carlos Sainz, and Checo Perez for not respecting that yellow. There have not been any penalties assessed that I've seen of that yet. Have we heard anything since we've been recording this podcast? The stewards have given Raikkonen a 20-second penalty for that incident, which they say is the equivalent to a drive-through penalty, which is kind of pointless because he crashed out of the race anyway. Uh, and they've good. put two penalty points on his license. Um, I love you, Kimmy, but good. Russell was also under investigation for moving under braking a couple of times, um, and he's got no further action against him. There's no results yet as recording on the double yellows. So I've just sent Matt the picture um, of Kimi Raikkonen and his steering angle just at the moment that he touched. Matt, what what do you think of that? Just looking That's at that. so clear. <laughs> that is one of... That is 100% like medieval naval warfare, ramming speed, break the hole. Like, Sebastian is, he, he is 76% of a car in front of him. Kimmy, he's not in his blind spot unless Kimmy's driving around like a freaking horse blind Kimmy's on. helmet, his head is facing the car. Look he's at it. He's looking at him and turning into... The one defence of Kimmy I'll give, the one defence of Kimmy that I'll give is he might have expected Seb to take the corner a bit tighter because the corner is going the way of Kimmy's steering wheel. But yeah, he should have been a bit more spatially aware. Not when your wheels are flipping over left like that. I'm I'm, I'm not being funny, but even if Kimmy was just going down that way, that steering angle is too strong, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying Kimi Raikkonen did this on purpose, but the evidence would suggest that he did. (laughs) That we're looking at. (laughs) I'm not saying he's a murderous madman, but keep be be aware. (laughs) Yeah, Um, for for the listeners, I will I will put this uh, picture that we're looking at um, in the show notes or on our Facebook group or somewhere for you. Um, On that news, since we literally just spoke about it, there's no further action on the double yellows for Perez, Sainz, Leclerc, Giovinazzi, Gasly or Ricardo. That's literally just come through, so that is that case closed. Kimi was the only one to get penalty. Okay, so the FIA case is closed. When did the, you know, civilian homicide charges drop for Kimi? <laughs> <laughs> He's currently in custody. Um, <laughs> so, um, cool. Let's do... Um, before we do our race ratings, my God, what an atmosphere it was at this race. The all, the, all the fans there, the Orange Army, it gave me goosebumps throughout the weekend to see that incredible atmosphere and the following that Max Verstappen has. It was it was just incredible, wasn't it? I mean, Callie, you're the Max Verstappen fan. You weren't there, but um, how did you feel about it? I was there in spirit. Oh, my God. It looked amazing. You know what? 
going to make a big call here. That is going to rival Monza. That is going to rival Ferrari at Monza. Just wait until mm. they're at Zandvoort. Wait until the madness there. If they're like that in Austria, what are they going to be like in Holland? Well, it, at least they have something to cheer about. The Tifosi may be a little bit dejected and crying in their beer at Monza this year. <laughs> That's coming from one. Yeah. Uh, I'll put it this way. You know, I'm stuck with my, fam- my family's house. I meant to say stuck. Leave that in the podcast. They're never going to listen anyways. Uh, I'm with my family up here in my ancestral home, if you will, and catching the end of the race in my family. And they were all just kind of in awe of the spectacle of how many people were there. Like, why are they all wearing orange? It, it, it is that that spectacle, that sense of unity. I mean, during the broadcast, they even showed a Max Verstappen fan, you know, cheering on Lando. It's just having people there to enjoy the racing. And we all know that whenever there's an orange smoke grenade going off, Max Verstappen is dangerous. That is the source of his power. Mm-hmm. So it, it it warmed the heart to see that. And God bless having the fans back. As much as the entirety of Austria and the entirety of everyone at that racetrack was a fan of Max Verstappen, they seem to be just as much of an anti-fan of Lewis Hamilton. We had we had someone from the nurse that was there this week, and they, she said when Hamilton qualified fourth, they cheered. When Bottas overtook Hamilton in the race, they cheered almost as loud as when Verstappen got all the good things he did. So, uh, yeah, it's a toxic atmosphere, but that'll obviously change completely in two or two weeks time when Hamilton's at his home race you, you say that but there will be Orange Army at Silverstone and there will not be as many Hamilton t-shirts as there will be in Austria this weekend um, they just won't because British people don't do that <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> can I just backtrack slightly a bit more news has come in on the driver penalties um, Nikita Mazepin has been given a 30-second time penalty and three penalty points for not slowing for yellow flags. So the, steward, <laughs> the stewards have ignored everyone and just given Mazepin a penalty for no seeming reason, which is quite amusing. They're trying to run him out of town with penalty points. <laughs> how many have they given him, did you say? Three for that incident. So how many is he on now? Uh, I don't know. I'll let you know. I'll find it. Could be the end. All right, Matt will let you know. <laughs> So let's do our race rating. So last week, the maximum uh, rating we had, I think it was a three out of 10. Sorry, Latifi also had that penalty, as same as Mazepin. Just those two. That is all the news, because that's no more drivers that we're left to find out about now. And that concludes the driver penalties. Uh, we've missed about five penalties that happened. So let's do our race ratings. We had... Uh, the same race last week, um, same venue. It's a different tyre set, but the same people, same place. And the maximum that we gave this race last week was a 3 out of 10. Um, I gave it a 2.5. I didn't enjoy it. It was rubbish. So, this week, I think we may be scoring it slightly differently. Um, Cal, I'm going to start with you. Please can have your race rating and, of course, your driver of the day. My race rating this week is a 7 out of 10. It's a big improvement from last week. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. There's a lot of spies going on, but it wasn't quite up there with like the French GP, which was a 9 out of 10. Um, driver of the day, I can't decide. So I'm going to give a team of the day, which is McLaren. Uh, Lando and Daniel, I can't decide between. So I'm going to have to give the driver of the day to McLaren because they were both exceptional today. Okay. Uh, You know, I'm very sorry, Callum, but that's not the rules. You have to pick a driver of the day. Keep fuck, mate. That's happening. Come. So you're going with Ricardo? 
No, I'm going with Lando. Okay, cool. No, but <laughs> Ricardo close second. They, yeah. they were both phenomenal today. I genuinely couldn't decide. Okay. So once the points update, that will tie Nikita Mazepin with Sebastian Vettel for the fifth most penalty points with five currently on their super license. Matt, please can I have your race rating and your driver of the day? Uh, race rating is... I mean, what do we give just for the fans being there and being able to see the Orange Army again? And the great racing, I got to give it an eight and a half. Uh, it was, it had everything. Because uh, I didn't see the sub crash. <laughs> uh, driver <laughs> of the day, I mean, how do you not give it to Lando? Out driving a car, getting his first row start, a podium, repeating again last year with last lap window magic. It has to be Lando Norris. Okay. Uh, Dan. Before I say driver of the day, I just want to give a quick shout out to Bartas. He's now 10th on the all-time podiums list with 61. He overtook Nelson Piquet today. Uh, so give the man some credit. Matt, stop it. <laughs> My race rating is a 5 out of 10. It was all right. It could have been a lot better. Based on a lot of the races we've had this season, I'm going to give it a 5. And my driver of the day is Lando Norris. I can't give it to anyone else. Verstappen probably deserves it as well, but Lando is just superb in that McLaren. Okay. Um, I'm going to give it a six. Um, I think a five is a bit unfair. I'm going to give it a six because it had some ridiculous penalties. Um, and my driver of the day, God, we've all, this is the first time we've all agreed, is Lando Norris. Yeah. Who disagrees? About, oh no, I think, what am I doing? Sorry. Um, Bottas, Bottas finished second. It's a 7 out of 10 at least for that. <laughs> it's just clicked in my head. We're going to take a quick break and then we're just going to just cover a bit of our thoughts and what's going on at Mercedes because there's some strange things happening. Uh, don't go anywhere. <laughs> We're going to talk about what we think is going on at Mercedes. There's talks of Russell coming in. Valtteri has not had his contract extended yet, but Lewis has just signed a two-year deal. Um, obviously, staying with them until 2023. So, what struck me the most this weekend? Yes, we had some strange team orders. You can't, can race Lewis, you can't race Lewis. Um, it was Valtteri on the podium. There is no two ways about it. This is not a happy man. He has never been more sad in his entire racing career, even, you know, on Drive to Survive when he was being bullied and all of that. This was a broken man. So let's talk about why. Um, Cal, what do you think about this? I think Bottas is, you know, and I've never defended Bottas, not, you know, knowingly anyway. Um, I think Bottas is being treated unfairly. I think Lewis has had, a, you know, obviously just had his contract and... That's immediately put Bottas even further down the pecking order at Mercedes. They're, they're clearly having internal issues somewhere. Uh, things are going wrong and it's leading to on-track performance not being where it usually is. Um, I, I, I think that George Russell has the seat because otherwise Bottas would have been announced already. And like Ollie said, Bottas looked like a broken man on that podium. He's just scored second place. That was the best Mercedes could have hoped for this weekend. That was the best they could have hoped for. And that's with Perez getting 10 seconds worth of penalties and coming off on the first lap. That was Perez's place. Bottas got it. 
And he looked like a broken man. I think George already has the seat, judging by how happy he looked in the paddock. Um, we saw him have a little chat with Toto and there was all smiles and giggles. And that was the only time Toto smiled all weekend as well. So putting two two together, George has the seat. I think there's a bad breakup coming with Mercedes and Botas. And the reason I say that is, yes, if to be fair to make all of my, our listeners aware, you know, I do thoroughly enjoy getting Dan's goat talking about Botas the way that we do. However, to be fair, uh, he's there on the podium today, as Cal said, a result that nobody really expected from Valkyrie Botas. And I guarantee you the only thing going through his mind was you're not allowed to race Lewis. He could have won the race, and the only thing that he would take away from this day is a trophy, and you're not allowed to race Lewis. I feel that Mercedes has some weird geological amount of pressure on Valtteri Bottas. You know, pressure creates diamonds, but it also breaks a lot of other things. Uh, is Valtteri Bottas the best number two in the game? Absolutely not, in my opinion. Does he be, deserve to be treated so dismissively and so out of hand by Mercedes? I don't feel so. Uh, but you have to feel for the man. It's becoming eerily reminiscent of Sebastian Vettel at Ferrari. Just the level of downtrodden we see on his face. And you know, Valtteri Bottas is a funny guy. He's a goofball. Uh, when's the last time we've seen him crack a joke? I mean, it, 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 it's hard to watch. So uh, I have to agree with Cal. I think he's gone, and he he knows it. They're just not letting us know it yet. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, Cal, Cal said it. George Russell, he's should be very upset that he just lost though his first points in F1, right? He just got clipped at the end. The guys in, 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 the, in the pen, the media pen afterwards, joking around, having a laugh, um, then seeing chatting with Toto Wolf, having a laugh with him. Toto didn't even say congratulations about Tree. He also didn't smile and went and in the post-race interview. He didn't even say well done to Valtteri. Now, we've been giving Valtteri a hard time on this podcast because he's not there to back up Lewis when he's needed. He's just done exactly what they've always wanted him to do. And he wasn't even recognised for it. And to me, it looked like Bottas didn't even want to be on that podium. He did not want to be there. It's, it, 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 was, it was awfully fake. And he was an upset man. So, Dan, I think it is time for you to say your piece on this. Sorry, I should, Dan the Bottas fan, I should have introduced you as there. How, how long have we got? I could be a little while now. I'll try and make it, I'll try and make it quick. You know, you've you've bashed Bottas, whatever. Maybe Bottas hasn't been where he should have been 100% of the time. At the moment, the last three races, 100% today, he's been exactly where he needs to be. One place behind Lewis Hamilton for the last two races. That'll suit Mercedes. Hamilton dropped back this week. Bottas did the absolute best that he could have done. No one was beat. Hamilton wouldn't have beaten Verstappen. You know, the, 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 Toto can sit there in his post-race interview and go... Yeah, Valtteri, Valtteri got on the podium today so he didn't have damage to the car. The fact that he gave that as the reason that Valtteri Bottas got on the podium is just ridiculous. Valtteri Bottas did not get on the podium because he didn't damage the car. Bottas got on the podium because he did everything that he needed to do, get as high as he could today. Yeah, he was given the place because Norris got a penalty, 
it's irrelevant. You need to be there to take the place. He then had to hold off Norris, who was never more than a second behind. He did that perfectly fine. You know, what more What more is the guy meant to do? If you said on paper, you started fifth, finished second, that's that's perfect. You know, what more, what more can he do? No one can beat Max. You know, I've said it before. And if Mercedes know that George Russell will be in that seat next year, they should be ashamed of themselves for the way that they're making Bottas's last year at Mercedes because it's frankly embarrassing for them and it's just disrespectful towards Bottas who has delivered them their constructors titles that they've been getting you know if Bottas hadn't been doing what Bottas has what Bottas has been doing <laughs> no, not Bottas what Bottas has been doing <laughs> they wouldn't have got all those constructors titles it's as simple as that he's done wonders for that team you know and in terms of him looking upset in the meet uh, upset afterwards or whatever the guy is subject to just endless, endless and endless abuse and hate on social media. Sorry. Th- those comments get to you after a while. He's not going to ignore every single one of these comments. It's just, it's not right, I I don't think his seat's definitely gone. And I don't think that Russell's definitely got that seat, whatever way around it you look. I don't think it will be announced at Silverstone. I reckon Toto will leave it as late as possible in the season to announce it. If it is Bottas' last season with Mercedes, Mercedes do, as I said earlier, they should be embarrassed with the way they're going about things because it's just not right. You should have two drivers and treat them equally. Even Red Bull treated Albon equally. If he was in a better position, he'd get the preferential treatment. It, it's just wrong. Okay, so what I want to say on Bottas is that the whole time he's been in that Mercedes, he's not performed to the um, capability of the car. There has been a few races where he has, and he's outshined Lewis Hamilton on that weekend. But, bigger picture, over the three or four seasons he's been there, he's not pushed that car to its full capability to match Lewis Hamilton. That's a fact. Toto has let that slide, purely because he's been a willing and able-bodied man who will lie down in front of Hamilton and say, yes, you take the lead, you're the man. Um now that the Red Bull has caught up and the Red Bull is actually competitive and beating Mercedes, Bottas is getting caught out a little bit. I think Toto's being annoyed by that because he's really realising that actually Bottas isn't as good as he initially thought. Bottas sh- probably shouldn't have been in the car as long as he has been. Now, I'm not discrediting Bottas as a driver. I'm saying he's not driving to the full capability of that car. Yeah, I, and I think Toto sees George Russell as the natural suit for that position. Lewis will coach him into the driver he needs to be for Mercedes. Valtteri just is an old dog that can't learn new tricks, unfortunately. You don't get... <laughs> Sorry, I just wanted to say the first one. That word. doesn't oh. mean that Mercedes haven't treated him properly. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that as a driver in that car, he's not done the job he should have done. You don't get 61 now, and counting, F1 podiums, 10th most of all time, for being a rubbish driver. You if do that- if you're in the fastest car. Well, don't you don't. He's not. He's not a rubbish driver, but he's been given the best car by a long way, and he's, he's worked for Mercedes. He's operating at seventy percent capacity of what that car could be achieving. He's and won so, them the constructors' title for the last. No, he not single handedly. He's helped win them. If Bottas hadn't have been as consistent and as you know solid, he finished second most races last season. You know, there's no there's no way of putting it. He's done everything Mercedes needed him to do. They've won the Constructors' Championship. Simple. Okay, here's my theory. This is um, possibly a conspiracy theory, but it's just what it looked like to me this weekend. 
Mercedes instantly said, don't race Lewis. Do not overtake Lewis. Why would they say that? Because is there a mid-season change coming? They need Lewis to get as many points as they can. Valtteri isn't in this title fight. And there's going to be a new driver joining that car. Well, I want to know, one, a mid-season change isn't coming, no way. Two, what happens with the constructors' points there? They carry on. So if, so if a new driver ones, joined, it would just carry on adding up. So the ones Bottas has earned for Mercedes so far stay on Mercedes' record, but they also stay on his record. Yeah, it's, it's the same scenario as when um, Gasly got replaced mid-season. Yeah, I couldn't record. think what happened there for some reason. Yeah. But no, I if there is a mid-season change... That's embarrassing for Mercedes. It really is because Bottas, if he hadn't have had that DNF in Monaco through no fault of his own in the pit stops, he would be third in the championship. Now, what more is the guy meant to do? You know, if Lewis can't beat Verstappen, Toto's argument can't be, oh, Bottas isn't beating Verstappen, let's get rid of him. No, but That's we've not seen, what Bottas is there for. We've seen George Russell in a Mercedes. He beat Bottas, right? They're having the, the biggest struggle... Mercedes need to keep making that sponsorship money. They need to keep getting good results because people are sponsoring them because they're the number one team. Um, so if if that can save their Constructors' Championship, changing the driver lineup, they will. And that would explain why Bottas looked like he was crying. <laughs> Literally, he, was, he acted as if this is the last time I'm going to be on a podium. That's what it, his body language said to me. And that is just my even- thoughts. I don't even think Mercedes are stupid enough to announce a driver change in a weekend that Bottas has just beaten Hamilton. Like that'd be just that'd be stupid for them. I think um well, at the end of the day, Bottas just hasn't cut the mustard. And although I agree completely he's not been treated with respect that he deserves, he's just not the fast driver that they need at this moment in time. He's had his go, he's had his day in the limelight. Now that the other teams have caught up, he's not competitive enough. And we've seen this time and time again when the pressure's on Valtteri he doesn't cope and the Max Verstappen Sergio Perez now McLaren even Ferrari in some races are catching him and making him sweat and he's not counting on it and George Russell will be that man to remain calm race do his race and get the points that they need and Valtteri sat fifth in the championship in the second fastest car Mercedes are looking at that saying it's not good enough they would look at that saying it's got not good enough, but you can't then say that Checo is cutting the mustard if Valtteri's not. Bottas is less than that DNF through no fault of his own behind him. They would take that into account. They would go, all right, you yeah, should really we're, be we're here. Not, we're not talking about Checo, we're talking about Valtteri. I'm talking about Mercedes looking at Valtteri. Red Bull looking at Perez is a completely different issue. Mm-hmm. Just to touch on something to kind of put it in perspective, I haven't done this until now. Let's go back one year. 2020. Mercedes had 573 points. Red Bull had 319. Lewis Hamilton, 347 points on his own. They win the constructors. They run the drivers on Lewis Hamilton alone. Botas had 223, which was ahead of Max Verstappen. As the disparity is there. 2019, Lewis Hamilton had 413 points. Botas had 326. That is a difference of 87 points. They beat Ferrari 739 points to 504. That's a difference of 235. Botas had 326. Hamilton is literally, see, 504, 419, was 91 points shy of winning the constructors and the drivers by himself in 2019. It's not that, 
Lewis Hamilton is very, very close to doing it all on his own. And granted, these are only two years. I have not gone back all the way. I literally was trying to keep you all talking so I could do more maths during that segment. Yeah, but you can say he nearly won it on his own. He didn't win it on his own. He needed the second driver there. And it probably would have been probably would have been a worse situation if there'd been someone fighting with Hamilton and they'd be constantly wiping each other out. 2016. Matt, but that exactly. was very good information. So l- please let us know what you think. I'm sure you guys have different opinions. You might agree with some of us. Uh, join the Cut to the Race podcast group on Facebook. Uh, let us know what you think. What's going on with Bottas? Uh, are you are you thinking that he's going to stay with Mercedes and win world championships or are you thinking it's time for him to go? Up next, me and Emma caught up with the Extreme E Veloce team manager. Welcome along to the Cut to the Race podcast. We've got a uh, guest today um, by the name of Ian Davies. How are you, sir? Yes, very well, thank you. Very well. Good stuff. Uh, Emma's with us as well on this interview. How are you, Emma? Yeah, I'm fine. It's uh, beautifully sunny and warm in Glasgow for a change. I am roasting in this room, so fanning myself when I can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's pretty hot in Manchester as well. Um, but Ian Davies, for those who don't know who you are, can you can you let us know what it is you currently work on? Yeah, so my name's Ian Davies. Some people call me Scooter. It's one of those uh, nicknames that uh, travels with you throughout your working career. And I'm the team manager for Veloce Racing. Um, and my prime uh, responsibility is the new Extreme um, Electric Off-Road Series. Now, as at Formula Nerds, we've been following Extreme E. It is so exciting to watch. And there's there's quite a, there's a number of, of different teams um, that participate in Extreme E. A few of them are run by, um, you know, former Formula One drivers. And obviously, currently, Lewis Hamilton has a team there as well. But what makes... Veloce racing sort of stand out in extreme Ian and how do you stand out from your rivals? I think that um, one of the things about extreme Ian and, and Veloce coming together at the same time is the fact that the sport is is to a degree um, starting a new book not a not a new chapter an old book is starting a new book so I think that you know sustainability the environment the sort of legacy that we leave in motorsport for years to come are all changing at the moment. And I think one of the great things about Veloce is because we're a new team, it's set up with all of those principles and goals in mind. Whereas I think other teams are coming into it from a very solid sort of fossil fuel background. And I don't want to say they're, they're now having to clean their act up, but they're now having to, to look at the environmental impact in the way in which we go racing which is something that Veloce doesn't have to do because we are we are new to the table and we've entered this, you know, with that sort of sustainability and equality at the forefront of, of what is our message. So, Ian, you're, you're obviously working with Adrian Newey, who's one of the greatest engineers uh, in motorsport that there's ever been. Uh, John Eric Verne as well, who's brought a huge amount of experience um, in racing. What's it like working with these two? And um, how do they bring... Uh, real valuable knowledge to this team. First of all, it's great to have you know two such legends uh, of the sport on on board, and they bring very different things to the table. Uh, if we talk about Yannick Verne or Jev, as we call him, Jev has that experience of uh, 
being a, a, a driver at the very top level. When he comes to the races, he brings a very, very level head. He's obviously got a lot of experience now from Formula E in terms of how to to uh, manage a lot of the uh, electrical stuff. So he very much understands the difference between, let's say, a fossil fuel sport and, and an electric sport, like extremely. Then with Adrian, we've got we've got the vision. So when we're talking about new rules, new regulations, the direction in which we want the sport to go in the, in the next five years, Adrian has been so heavily involved in that with F1 and, and and also you have to remember with his time um, with uh, America's Cup racing, he's had a spell with them as well. So I think that he brings this vision and this sort of, you know, he, he can interpret the rules, he can see where the sport needs to go and advise the sport as much as he advises uh, Veloce on on where we, we, we should be or could be in five years' time. So as well as a really strong management team, at Veloce, you've also got two amazing drivers. You've got Jamie Chadwick, who um, has got a lot of experience, you know, but she's she's very young. And then you've got Stefan Zarazan as well, who's a, who's a five-time Le Mans podium finisher. So what was your sort of thought process around bringing those two drivers on board? Uh, we actually, you know, it was something that we, that we looked at long and hard. And I think for those that were in the sport, we were one of the last teams to to name our drivers um, before the start of the season because we wanted to to evaluate. Um, and again, we are one of the only teams that, to have reserve drivers as well in, in place. We looked at the whole package. And that a little bit was borne out by the COVID uh, situation and, and, and regulations. Or, you know, you're only one test away from needing a new driver in a hurry. Uh, I think the mixture of youth and experience, um, I think to have two drivers that are both very young um, doesn't doesn't really necessarily work in in this new sport. So with Stefan, we've got somebody with a you know tremendous amount of experience. World Rally with with, with Subaru and Triple Five back in the day. Um, he's done uh, Formula E. He's done Le Mans, you know, with Toyota. So he's got a, a massive amount of experience to support Jamie in her journey to the sport. You know, with Jamie, we have a very young, dynamic driver, uh, you know, Formula W um, champion It's a, it's a, in its inaugural season. She's, Jamie's very hungry, willing to learn, um, you know, like most young people are. So I think we've got a great balance there of, uh, of experience as well as youth. And I think, you know, quality is very important to us. It's very important to the series. I think that... Uh, the same as Formula One, there is a um, not so many young female uh, racers. I think very public, if I haven't said this before, I think the problem is we don't put enough young females in at the bottom of the sport to get enough young females out at the top of the sport. So we need to find a way of putting hundreds, not tens, of uh, of young female racers into the sport. And I think Jamie waves the flag for those young females as well. So... Um, you know, said it was some, not something that we took lightly. You know, we, we you know we didn't get in the line of, of paid drivers or drivers that wanted to bring money to the team to get a drive. We took the drivers that we've taken for a reason. And extremely is one of those. Um, well, it's, it's a whole new concept where you have a, a male match with a female, and uh, like you know, like we've discussed, it, it's it, it's something that is really important for this sport. Um, let, let's have a look at your season so far. So um, there, there's not. 23 races like you see in you know Formula One for example there's only a limited number of races and the first one the Desert X Prix 
didn't quite go to plan. Um, as as team manager for this team, um, what were your thoughts uh, over that weekend? Yeah, it was uh, was not was not the best weekend. I think you know I've been in the sport thirty four years. I mean, I've quite a bit of experience. You have good and bad weekends. You always hope to start with a, a good weekend, not a bad weekend like we had. Look, I think it was a lot of expectation, a lot of pressure on everybody um, for the first race of the season, new car, new championship. And, and it, you know, it's it's one, it's extreme. It's one tuft of camel grass uh, when you're pushing for a qualifying time. And, and you know, slightly turned out wheel and, and you're over. It, it, it was as simple as that, you know, and, and it could have happened to any drivers. It did to several drivers during, during that weekend. So I think, I genuinely believe we were just unlucky. I know people say you make your your own luck, but I think you know you you were racing to win every weekend, and when you race to win every weekend, things like that will happen every now and again. It, I mean, it was infor- unfortunate. Obviously, it was the first the first event, and I've got to be honest: when you're going that speed on that terrain, it is what a few angles on your steering, um, and you're you, well, we we know what happens. So that ended yeah. up in a in a did did not start. Um, but it was very different last time out uh, for the Ocean X Prix. Um, well done. I mean, that was a fantastic comeback. Um, how, how did you and the team find that? I think we obviously sat back and, and, and looked at what we'd done and analysed uh, as a team. And I think we, we, we had a slightly different approach, let's say. It wasn't massively different, but we needed to play ourselves in, in Dakar because of the result that we'd had in Saudi. So we were very much, I suppose, on a risk versus reward strategy. So we 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 just we gauged our pace and the amount of risk that we wanted to take um, uh, based on where we wanted to be. So you know you need to set a qualifying time just enough to get you to a semi final. Need to set a semi final time just enough to get yourself um, into the final, and then in the final anything can happen as 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 we saw. So we had a slightly different approach, uh, not massively. Um, I think. That actually is probably more pressure on the drivers in Dakar than it was in in um, in Senegal. Uh, sorry, in uh, Saudi Arabia, because they knew that they needed to bring the car home safe and, and, and get a decent result for the team. So, massive team effort. Um, Jeff was with us in in Dakar as well. You know, very level-headed man. And with the, with the team of people we've got, you know, we're a good team. We're an experienced team. You know, ART are our, our technical partners. You know, an F two team. Um, you know, they came to Dakar just off the back of winning the race in in, in Monaco in, in in Formula Two. You know, we 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 were on a bit of a high. We you know, sort of we rode the crest, and, and we got a fantastic result. You know, the pressure's on now to to get that same result now in Greenland. And when you're in professional sport at this level, the pressure is always on at some at some level. I've I've, I've got to say one thing: Extreme E has not uh, lacked is excitement you know um last time out that second position it, it was incredible it was really edge of the seat stuff um what do you see being the challenges going into the arctic expiry and you know how how what's the difference between the the locations that we have raced at compared to where we're going i think that the, the difference is that we don't know where we're going um the, the rules are, are so are regulated so tightly that it's not as if we've done a, a lot of testing we had sort of uh, two days proper testing before the season started and then our cars are taken away from us and we just get them back on the Wednesday of each event. So I think that one of the challenges has been arriving at the event, doing the track walk, and then 
sorting, you know, our plan of attack or spec for the car. We've got some aerial footage shots. We know the rough area in, in Greenland are going in, in Candelasek. So, but it's sort of aerial photographs or or some uh, drone footage that we've got from the organisers. So, you know, it'll be the Wednesday when we set foot in Greenland that we will that we will really see what we've got. And that's the challenge, I think, making those, we sort of have two days really to rebuild our car, to sort the spec out, um, and to to plan our attack for the weekend. So that sort of adventure, I suppose, the extreme nature of, of Extreme is one of the biggest challenges. So Extreme as a whole projects some very important messages around climate change, around sustainability, and around clean energy as well. And this is something that you see um, at every um, X-Pre, you know, um, each team does something, um, you know, to, to promote awareness around climate change and you race at um, locations around the world that have been affected by climate change. But how important are these messages um, to, to you and your team? And what are the team doing as part of um, promoting the awareness of climate change? Yeah. But they're massively important to us as a team. They're massively, massively important to me as a person. You know, I, I, I elected to find a job within Extremely because I believed in in what they were doing and the legacy projects that we've that we've got going uh, as as an organisation. You know, when we, we sat down and when Veloce decided to to enter the sport, uh, it was an it's a hugely important part of them. You know, we say that you know we we selected the number five because the number five on our car stands for you know, the five UN principles for, for climate change. And number five on that list is is equality. Um, so, you know, we see those things as as being very important, you know, and, you know, environmental impact um, as well. So, you know, we signed up uh, very early on to be a, a carbon neutral team. We've already offset all our uh, pre-season uh, carbon from when, when we started as a company up until the start of the season and that has actually gone into a legacy project in the Amazon in planting trees in, in, in the rainforest. So we have a an audit company called called Allcott that uh, that audits us um, and we make a big effort to uh, or you know, it's not a big effort, but we make the effort to make sure that that's all up to date and that we're offsetting our, our, our carbon. And you know, even down to the number of people we take to an event, teams themselves were extremely, you know, we were sharing staff in, in Dakar. For, for rebuilds of car after Saudi Arabia, which is almost unheard of uh, within teams, so we didn't have to fly as many people down there. Everybody in Extreme is trying to to live to the best of their ability. Um, you know, we're not going to single-handedly change the world overnight, but I think it's important that we that we that we what's the word I'm looking for that, that, that we carry out. You know. What, what we say and that, that we practice what we preach, I suppose, is, is, is what, I'm, what I'm looking for. And that's a massive part of what, what Veloce as a, as a company stands for and, and why we were, we were set up and why Extreme E was, was chosen as the, as the flagship for Veloce Racing. I mean, it's, it's been setting an example to the, to the rest of the motorsport industry has Extreme E with, with everything that you're doing towards climate change, but also the, the whole setup you know, of the car, you know, what the car is made out of and, you know, the, the, the tyres, something that I've always been quite fascinated in is 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 how, like, tyres, for example, are made out of dandelion rubber. And it, it, even the smallest details down to the car 
um, are all sustainable. Um, but do you believe that Extreme is setting an example to the rest of the motorsport industry and that we could actually start seeing these things in the future? Yeah, I, th I think I think Extreme E, following on from Formula E, you know, we have to, to, to be aware that Formula E sort of set the benchmark to degree um, in terms of what could be done in the sport. And then this is a continued development uh, from the same people. But if we do the bodywork, for example, the bodywork is is made out of hemp, which is um, uh, a fibre material, not carbon. Uh, it's uh, it's um, a fairly new material to the industry, but a lot of the sort of uh, GT teams are now using it for their exterior bodywork. It's it's a it's a prime example. It can be it can be recycled quite uh, quite easily. One of the problems with recycling carbon, or it's very difficult to recycle carbon, and very expensive. In the first place, and then you know the, the hemp is uh, is quite an easy, or it's much easier to to recycle and working quite hard on that. Um, the company that make the hemp give give a, give a really good example of um, of this material. So to create the same strength as carbon for a tub or for an intrusion impact on a on a race car, the hemp currently is about thirty percent thirty percent heavier. Than what carbon is in in that application, <clears throat> but I think we will see in years to come that the FI will raise the weight of the cars so that the likes of hemp will be mandatory, or or sort of a recyclable material is mandatory for those parts of the car. So I think we're showing how the sport can be changed, and we're showing what can be done in the sport, and I think that we will see much more of that in the next four to five years. You know, intertwined in the FIA regulations. One thing that's uh, really fascinating uh, about Extreme E, um, if if we look at Formula One, for example, you, it, the logistics of moving all of this around the world, um, <laughs> but Extreme E have a very different way of doing this, which I've got to be honest is is one of my favourite things about the sport. Um, can you just explain a little bit about how uh, you move around the world as a as a as a, as a sport? Yes, yeah, so we we have our mothership. Uh, the St. Helena, which has been Kittigate, um, to act as not only a research station for the scientists, but also accommodation um, headquarters uh, for the events, as well as to move all everything for for the teams. So we, we are allocated a, a certain amount of uh, freight size to, to go with our car. And actually not very big. I think it's three metres by two metres by two metres is the box that we're laid to take all of our stuff for the season. Um with us on, on, on the ship um, plus the car so you know it's it's, it's a, a very environmentally sort of friendly way of moving the entire paddock around to these to these remote locations and i think that if to remember the number of events we're doing if we're going to do five to six events per season and that calendar is spread out based on how long it takes a ship to to chug along at its 12 knots um to get from place to place so i think and then as far as then the, the air travel goes, you know, we're only allowed a six personnel on site uh, during the, the race weekend. That's um, engineers, mechanics, press people, and then the two drivers. So when you see, in, you know, in, in other sports, you know, we're taking 80, 100 people to a, to a race meeting. Um, you know, we're, we're less than 10 for every single race meeting for every single team. So we're less than 100 people for the entire paddock um, on, on site. So I think it's just a way of reworking the sport, but I think it's 
you know, you start with your goals as a championship and what you're you're wanting to achieve. And again, because it's brand new, it's it's easier to set those targets at the beginning of a sport where, you know, we're seeing it now with the sort of financial impact in Formula One. With the cost cap, you know, it's lots of redundancies and it's very difficult to sort of remove people once they've already been given the position on the, in the grid or on, on the team. So it's that's an advantage to us being such a young series. And being um, being a sport that, or a motorsport, which has turned the tables where actually, I can't think of another motorsport where they don't want fans to attend a race. I I, I can't, I mean, I challenge you to think of one because I sure can't. Um, <laughs> It, do you think that technology now and the way that you bring this sport to life is the answer to that? Well, I think Formula One, to answer your question, does its best job of trying to get fans not to come to the event because of the cost of it. <laughs> That's very <laughs> true. If you know what I mean. <laughs> um, again, it's practicing what we preach. So if, if I think if you take the amount of carbon it takes to get everybody to Wembley tonight, um, whichever way they travel, to see England play Germany, um, you know, that's something that's one of those hidden things that never really gets spoken about when we're trying to clean up sport in general. So I think by having no spectators um, and then creating a really, really good TV package, it means you have to put much more effort into your TV package to, to, to spread the word. But I think, again, with remote control cameras and um, all, all the editing suites and all the graphics guys, I think it's three, everything gets filmed from Extremely and sent back to London. But I know that the, the graphics team are, are based in Holland and uh, the timing and scoring guys that give their graphics are based in Spain. And all of that work now is just done remotely. So for years, all those people travel to the event with, you know, tens of trucks for TV. It's all just uploaded now back to people in their own in their own country on basis. So I think as technology has moved, it enables Extremely to use that technology now to be a very remote-based product and i think if we look at the sort of age demographic of people coming through and it's a little bit i think we understand with velocity from our esports segment if you're sort of looking to 14 to 23 year olds they view sport now in a very different way to our generation viewed sport you know we we felt we needed to be at the event we felt that we needed to be there to experience it and i think you know because of esports for example and and, and the advent of of handheld TV uh, with the telephone now, that that sport is is now viewed very differently, which is again helps Extreme E being so new into into the product that they're producing. I think you're absolutely right with that because when Extreme E actually um, launched, we had so many of our followers asking us, "Where can we watch this? Where can we watch this?" And you know the 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 television like. When it's aired on TV, there's so many TV channels that are actually scrambling to to show Extreme E. Um, it's become so accessible for fans as well, which I think is absolutely brilliant. Um, but I think I think as you as you sort of said, it it sort of paves the way to other motorsport championships that you can actually do this remotely. I mean, you you've brought a a small team. To each location and the majority of all the timings and all that or the tech side of things has been done remotely so you you are showing that it, it can be done yeah yeah it can be and i think you know the only the, the downside to that is that internet becomes very important around the world in, in order to be able to do this and and satellite technology but the more and more satellites that we get in the world um 
the easier it, it, it is to do that. So I think we are we are quite IT heavy. <laughs> so we are very much right on IT to do that. But I think that you know the locations that we go to to a degree will be dictated by us having satellite coverage in order to produce the the TV package. And everybody wants everything live now. The world is live. No one has anything recorded and shown on next week. Everybody wants it now. So we live in a very now society, which is one of the challenges for for Extremely in with their TV product. I've 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 got to be honest. I didn't even consider what the what the challenges would be bringing this all to life from the places where you're going. Um, I mean, what what how long does it take to set up one of these events? You know, in terms of what's the how many weeks before do the to the technical teams turn up before the driver does? No, it's normally it's normally Mon- it's normally Monday. So I think that obviously. Oh, wow. When they're, when they're at a venue, I think mm. there's the operations venue-based people that, that help put the track out and put up the security fencing. And mm. I think those guys are, are there, you know, 10, 12 days before the event. But I know that I quite often fly on a Monday or a Tuesday and TV are, TV are normally on the same flight. That's so incredible. the TV guys come in. Um, so Tuesday or Wednesday are normally the setup days because we have to rebuild the car from the previous race weekend. Um, and then we get to work on Wednesday and Thursday, and same time TV is setting up on Wednesday and Thursday. And then we start with shakedown and free practice and general run-throughs on Friday, ready for the you know sharp end on on Saturday and Sunday. So again, everybody's just very organised, um, and you know the number of days that we're we're on the ground is is quite limited. Well, that's that's really impressive. Now, um, Ian Davies, you are obviously. Veloce's Racing Extreme E team manager, which means inherently you like motorsport, I would have thought. Um, yeah. And as you've said, you've worked in the industry for quite a while. So we, we have a little um, segment on our podcast, which we're going to invite you to a very special place. Uh, this place is our Formula Nerds motorsport time machine. In this time machine, you can go anywhere. You can actually go forward if you want. It's a, it's, it, it goes both ways. Um, to any racing series, any event, uh, drive any car, essentially do anything you want um, in motorsport. Um, I'm going to invite you in. Where, where, would you, where would you like to go, Ian? A difficult one, because I've, uh, I'm a rally man by, by trade. I started off in the World Rally Championship for many, many years and, 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 and rally cross um, right the way through to where I am now in electric motorsport. So but I think, I think there was one era that I would have liked to have done more, and it was just not massively before my time, but slightly before my time when I started in the late 80s. So I think the early to mid-80s for the old Paris-Dakar rally. So I think we were in a situation there where we were sort of nine and a half, 10,000 miles over three weeks with no internet, with no GPS, you have to remember, and it was just a massive adventure. And people have to stand on their own two feet. Um, and I think that's now with, with the internet and with, with GPS, sat-nav and everything else in the world, the world has become such a sanitised uh, place or the sport has become very sanitised. And I think the sort of pioneers back in the 80s um, in, in that off-road sort of stuff, I think they were, it was just a massive adventure for them. So that's going back to it, it's, it's purest form. Yes, yeah. And I, I quite often look back at the Formula One in the, sort of 60s and 70s, and I think the adventure and the lack of rules and regulations. And we, we've made massive steps in safety. You know, safety in the sport is 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 so good these days compared to what it was. And then, and sadly, we lost a lot of people on the road to this 
um, to getting where we are today. But I think, yeah, the, the purest in me, the, the lack of rules and regulations and control, I, I would like to go back to. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. And um, I can't wait to see the next race. So um, do you want to tell us where and when the fans can uh, see Veloce next on TV? Uh, well, Veloce next on TV is actually next weekend because we have W Series. So we have Jamie Chadwick racing in W Series next weekend um, in, in Austria. But I think, oh gosh, you put me on the spot now. I'm really bad with dates, but I think it's the last <laughs> weekend in August uh, that we are in Greenland with, with our with our um, e- Extreme E team. And it'll be on you know ITV and Sky and all the BT Sport and, and all the other places. But thanks for having me on. It's always nice to talk about the background of the sport. And, and how we've got here. Again, thank you very much, Ian. It would be great to talk to uh, you and the team later on in the year and see how you're getting on. So uh, you're welcome on this show anytime you want. Please do. Anytime, Ollie. I was always uh, happy to, uh, to chat about it. And that's all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank you very much uh, for listening to the show. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, please give that five star ratings, subscribe to all the things that all those YouTubers ask you to do. Um, thank you very much to my panel. Uh, Dan, thank you very much, the Bottas fan. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and Matt. Double, double boiling trouble. I have missed stirring the pot. Thank you for having me. And Callum, who's uh, been dying for a wee throughout most of the debates we've been having. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you very much. I'm now going to go and bereave myself. It's been a pleasure. Leave five stars. Um, I've enjoyed a lot of pain during this podcast. So five stars will help me recover. Thank you. And listen to the podcast midweek as well. There'll be one coming out midweek. It's a good one. Thank you very much. We'll be back soon. You'll be-